Thank you, Pastor. It's good to be here tonight. I want to take just a brief minute. Uh, we are U.S. missionaries, so we have done, uh, we've been pastoring down in Palatka for 15 years, actually on staff there for 22 years at First Assembly in Palatka, never realizing that God would shift us out of that, and I'll share a little bit of that background in a minute uh, story there. But we are U.S. missionaries on assignment with Compact Family Services. I'm going to show you a short video because most of you probably have never heard of Compact Family Services of the Assembly of God. And this is the uh, compassion arm, what we do right here in the U.S. Here's a short video, and you can see who Compact is. treatment, respite care, and transitional living. Highlands Maternity Home has provided life-giving care for thousands of moms facing unplanned pregnancy, as well as adoption services. Compact's Foster Care Placement Service provides competent care for children and youth with loving families. And with over 400,000 foster children in the U.S. every day, Compact empowers partnerships for local response. Compacare empowers the local church to better serve vulnerable children and families in their own communities. Its evidence-based model through local churches significantly improves capacity, stability, and quality for foster children and families. By 2025, Compact envisions ministry for up to 20,000 foster children every day in America. Compact Family Services is growing its professional offerings and community partnerships. Together with our partners, we are redeeming vulnerable children with life, hope, and family. Become a Compact Partner today. Learn more at CompassionateAction.com. Again, I want to thank Pastor and you guys for allowing me to be here t- this evening. Uh, I've got a picture I'm going to throw back here of my family and uh, They would have been here this evening, but it would have been a bit overwhelming for all of us here. This is, uh, let me just tell you that um, my wife and I, she's at home. Actually, my oldest daughter is up in the the sound booth this evening helping to run the the slides. But uh, my wife and I, when we first got married, I wanted one child. I thought, you know, that would be plenty. One, you know, who needs more than one child? She wanted four children, and we ended up having five well, something happened, and uh, we began our foster adoption journey, and we have uh, 10 going on 11 children right now as we have uh, been fostering and adopting children over these last few years. Really, our story began, our foster, amen, our foster adoptive, amen, appreciate that. Our foster adoptive uh, journey began in 2013 while we're pastoring First Assembly of God. We really were just trying to be supportive of some people in the church that had a heart to do international job adoptions is really what we had been walking through. But then we began to discover the need, what was happening locally, and I'll share a few stats with that in the state of Florida. And as a result of that, um, multiple families got together and said, hey, what can we do to be a part of this? And this all began in, in 2013. Uh, let me just tell you a, a, just a quick story here because I'll, I'll bring back, come back to this story in just a minute. But one of the children, as we began to foster, uh, came into our home. He came to us uh, the day before his third birthday. His name was Destin. 
And he was sharing a bedroom with my oldest son, Skyler, who was 16 at the time. And this particular evening, I was putting him to bed, and my son was not home at the time. He was out, and I was just trying to think to myself, I wonder what Destin, what does he think about, you know, his family? What does he remember? And he came to us from another foster home. Tragic situation. The foster mother dropped him off at daycare one day, and when she pulled out, she had a massive heart attack and died. So not only had he been removed from his own home, uh, but he had also experienced the trauma of losing now uh, uh, his foster mother. So I was putting him to bed that evening, and I looked down at him, and I I just said, I said, Destin, I said, "Um, Skylar is my son. I said, whose son are you? And his response always gets to me, but I just remember this young boy, not even four years old, looking back at me, and he said, I'm nobody's son. Not even four years old, and he understood that he had no connection. He had no father in his life. I went back to my bedroom that evening, and um, I I told my wife, I said, because I didn't have a response for him, but I told my wife, I said, this is the conversation I just had with, with Destin tonight. He has no connection. He doesn't know who he belongs to even. And these stories uh, are stories that are told over and over again. Half of the children that went to bed last night didn't have a father to say goodnight to you. And there's a, a, a breakdown. There's an issue taking place in our nation where families are falling apart and it's impacting our children in a severe way. So this all began in 2013. As I fast forward to October of last year, um, uh, as we looked at October of 2017, our church was doing well. I'd been there, uh, like I said, almost 22 years. And we had been now fostering on the side uh, um, uh, side ministry almost. We had fostered 12 children, adopted five of those children uh, to be our own. And as I moved into October, I'd already had a couple discussions. I, in the middle of a board meeting one night, one of my board members just out of the blue said, Hey, Pastor, he said, do you think you'll ever do this orphan care ministry full-time? And I laughed and said, I'm never going to do this full-time. We'll just, you know, I love pastoring the church. We'll always do it like this. I went home and told my wife, you know, you won't believe what the board member said tonight. Ha, ha, ha. Also, in the process, I was interviewing a new staff member to be a children's pastor, and he asked me, he said, you know, you're not going to be leaving anytime soon, are you? And I was like, what is up with you people? As you keep asking me these same types of questions. I said, no, we're not going anywhere at all. And then the night of October the 18th, 2017, I was sitting in a service, and I had asked my uh, now new children's pastor to speak that evening. And as he was speaking, he was talking about how God had brought him to Plaque and how God had a better plan for him. And I felt like the Holy Spirit quickened to me and said, you know what, I don't have a better plan for you. And there was kind of a pause. And I was like, huh? And then I felt the Holy Spirit impress me, I have a new plan for you. And I went home that night, and I told my wife, I said, The Holy Spirit spoke to me this evening and said he has a new plan for us. And I knew that in 2018 we'd be stepping out in faith and doing something. I had no idea, but dealing with foster and adoptive uh, ministry and churches. And so we began to explore that, and I I began to, I told my church board in November what was taking place, that we'd be leaving in 2018. And that uh, was a call on, on, on our lives to where we are today as what we do, and I'll explain to you, is we uh, reach out to churches and we develop foster care ministries to bring stability, quality, caring, loving Christian homes to children who are in places of instability in their life. We're with Compact Family Services of the Assemblies of God. You just saw a short video on them. 
they have something called CompaCare, which we had been operating in our own church. And CompaCare as a national movement that's taking place, and it's amazing. My wife and I were just in uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin this past weekend at a very large church up there, and they have 11 families fostering right now, and they are developing uh, support systems for those foster families. The reason this is important, and I'll mention it in just a minute, is because half of foster families quit within 12 months or their first placement. It's a huge issue in retention of foster families in our nation right now that's, uh, that's crippling our foster care system and impacting and traumatizing children every single day. Our passion, my wife and I's passion, we've committed our life to this, is to make sure that every child has a quality, caring, loving, stable, authentic Christian family to care for them until either they're reunified with their family or until they find permanency, perhaps through adoption. James one twenty seven tells us this simply, and I pulled this out of the New Living Translation, that pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress. This is true religion. And children that are in foster care today are are literally our modern-day orphans. They have no connection. Uh, And some of our stories for some of our kids shows they have no connection, no family to take them, nobody to care for them. And the church is here to be the solution to their problem. Can you say amen to that? I want to share with you a a few stats just so you have an understanding because two things that Angie and I do is we educate people as to what the issue is nationally as well as uh, locally. Uh, And the second thing we do is equip churches. A few stats here in the area of capacity, stability, and quality. There's over 440,000 children in the U.S. foster care system. In fact, in a a one year, over 670,000 children will go through our system in the process of a year. In Florida, we have a huge challenge. Uh, 24,000 children today in foster care in our state. Most of the issue taking place with that deals with the area of opioid uh, prescription, prescription drugs. In the state of Florida alone, University of South Florida did a study, but for every seven prescriptions that are written, written for opioid uh, drugs out of 100, there's a 32% increase in the number of kids that are removed from homes. In fact, 2.7 million grandparents in the United States today are raising their grandchildren as a result of the drug addictions with opioid. This has caused a major crisis in the area of children that are being displaced from their homes. Uh, You'll see here that uh, in in any given day, there's 100,000 children in our nation waiting to be adopted, saying, will somebody adopt me? Will somebody give me permanency, a forever family? And we address these three issues here of capacity, stability, and quality. There's more children uh, in care than there are beds for these children. The stability of these children, uh, 35% of these kids are moving homes two to three times a year. And then the quality of these homes Uh, because there's just not enough homes that are not being placed in the right kinds of homes. And so when we look at half of foster families quitting within 12 months of their first placement, we see there's a major issue going on. But I have good news for you. The church is the solution. Can you say amen? Everywhere that CompaCare, the model we implement into churches, is used, we see a 96% or better retention rate in foster families. That brings stability. It answers the issue for capacity and the quality of homes. For instance, let me give you a snapshot. The church that I pastored, in just three years, we had five families foster over 50 children. 18 adoptions take place in just a three-year time slot. Everywhere that we see this model being used across the nation, we're seeing stability created 
four children as a result of the church uh, coming in and wrapping around and surrounding foster families and helping them to succeed. Part of our vision is to do uh, four different things. What I mentioned here is we're educating people as to what the need is, as well as we recruit churches and we train volunteers uh, to multiply basically the impact and the effort of what's taking place. So this past weekend, uh, we, rec- we were training volunteers on how they could bring support to foster families as, at three different levels, either just uh, through uh, goods and services that they would provide, you know, diapers maybe, meals, things like this, or interaction with children through mentoring, respite, child care for foster families, or volunteering as a foster family themselves. We like to say that some will foster, others will support those that foster, but everybody can do something. In Psalms chapter 68, 5 and 6, it says this, Father to the fatherless, defender of widows, this is God whose dwelling is holy. God places the lonely in families. An amazing thing here, as I look at this picture of my family again, that little boy that I was talking about in the beginning is in the far right. His name is Ezekiel now. Today when I ask him, Ezekiel, whose son are you? He says, I'm your son. I'm your son. Amen? In fact, last night at the dinner table, he came up to me and he said, Daddy, thank you for adopting me. He's six years old now. Can I tell you that the church is the solution to the problem? And we see this happening across the board. And so tonight, we appreciate you giving us the ability to share with you what God is doing. And let me leave you with this before I get into the Word to understand this evening that some will foster, but it requires others to support those. But everyone can do something to help vulnerable children and families that are struggling today. Amen? Do you have your Bible with you this evening? If you open in Luke chapter 10, I want to take you to a narrative, biblical narrative tonight. I titled the message, It Only Takes One. It Only Takes One. In Luke chapter 10, as we look at the biblical narrative here, you're familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan. And in the story of the Good Samaritan, it starts out with a lawyer coming to Jesus to test him. Now listen, who's smart enough to test Jesus? And here this lawyer, a religious lawyer really, comes and he wants to test Jesus and try Jesus and see uh, how smart Jesus really is. And so this lawyer comes to Jesus and he says, you know, hey, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus comes back to him and says, well, you tell me, you're the lawyer, you're the attorney, what's written in the law? What does the law say about this? And so this attorney, this lawyer, addresses Jesus and says, well, it says, you know, to love God, all your heart, soul, mind, strength, everything you have to love God. And then it goes on to say, you know, love your neighbor as you would love yourself. And Jesus says, you're right, you're correct. You've answered this absolutely correctly. Now, the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 10 that this lawyer, now he's asked this question, he's been told he's correct, that he wants to justify himself. Because the reality is he's come and he's asked Jesus about eternal life. Now he knows he's correct, but this lawyer knows that he's not following through with what the Bible says. He wants to justify himself before Jesus, and he chooses this area. You can tell by reading the text that his issue deals with loving his neighbor as he would desire to be loved himself. So he asks him the question. He simply, you know, says to him, you know, who is my neighbor? Let's try to clarify this. You know, he's trying to find out, no, who who is it that I really need to love? Let me know who this person is that I need to love. And so Jesus 
tells him a story. And in fact, I think that Jesus is actually telling a story about this attorney himself, this lawyer. I think he's actually telling him a story and saying, let me tell you a story. And it's really a story about you. Don't you know Jesus likes to get into our business and open up our lives and to begin to tell us and reveal our own darkness in our life? And he says, you know, there's this man. And he was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, let me just tell you that to go from Jerusalem to Jericho, you go down from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's a beautiful city in the mountains. Go down to Jericho. It's about an 18-mile passageway here through the east. In fact, they call this route, it's named the Bloody Way is what they call it, the Bloody Way. And the reason they call that is because it's a dangerous uh, trek from Jericho, from Jerusalem to Jericho, this direction, because of the thieves that would that would be in the mountains and across in the in the pathways there. And so it was an extremely dangerous trek to go from Jerusalem to Jericho on this route. And that's what why they gave it the term and the the bloody way. So they, he, he's telling about this man that's traveling, and as he's traveling down uh, to Jericho, this man is attacked. And he's beaten, he's robbed, and the Bible says that he's left to be for half dead. He's just left to die there on the side of the road. This is where the story begins to interact with this lawyer. Jesus says, so this man is now left for half dead. And do you know who comes by him? Do you know who, who walks by this man, a priest, a religious man, who should stop, who should do something? In fact, there was probably about 12,000 priests that lived in Jericho. So this was probably not an uncommon route even for some of these to go. And the Bible says in this in the biblical narrative, and Jesus tells this attorney, he says, let me tell you what the priest did when he shows up to this man. He goes, he sees the man, and then he goes to the other side, and he passes on. He does nothing at all. He said, then there was another man that shows up. He was a Levite. He, he approaches this man that's, that, that's dying right now, that needs help, that's probably crying out, help me, help me. And he sees the man also. And then he crosses and goes on. Remember, the question is, who is my neighbor? And then a third person comes along, a Samaritan. This is now a person that the attorney despises. The lawyer despises, the Jews despise Samaritans. They don't want to have anything to do with them. They're marginalized. They are the cast outs in the culture. And he says, this is Samaritan, when he comes upon this man, has been beaten, has been robbed, has left for half dead. He sees the man, but he stops. He stops to do something about it. In fact, Jesus says this man didn't just stop to check on him. He put this man on his, in his own transportation, brutally beaten, probably bloody, put him in his own car, drives him to a place where he can be cared for, puts him on his own animal, takes him to this place, cleans his wounds, bandages him up, and then he has to go on with his business. So he doesn't just, he goes to the, the person who's managing this and says, look, I've got to leave, but I'm going to give you a day's labor wages. Would you care for this man? Then I'll come back. When I come back, anything you spend that, that is an extra cost to you, I'll take care of that. He's gone completely out of his way to take care of this man who he doesn't know at all. 
And the people who should have been caring for him went the other direction. They saw him went the other direction. So we see here that he took him and he took care of him. And here we look at this story, and it all started with eternal life. It all started with this question of who is my neighbor? And Jesus is saying, this guy here, he's your neighbor. Would you have stopped? Would you have taken care of him? You see, I believe this attorney was trying to justify his own position, why he wasn't doing the very acts of God that he was supposed to. Love your neighbor? Well, who's my neighbor? Who is that person? I can imagine the cynicism in his voice. And now Jesus tells his story to say, now do you understand what the law really means when it says to take care of your neighbor? I want to take and for just a minute, I want to look at a prime directive we have as the church. Four areas that we see as a prime directive. The first area that we see is to evangelize the lost. And this, there's no doubt in them that, that Jesus has told us to evangelize the lost, to worship God. And we're called, this is part of our prime directive, that we're to worship God, to disciple believers. This is what we're called to do, disciple believers. And the fourth part of our prime directive is to show compassion. Showing compassion is as much and as entirely as important as evangelizing the lost, as, as worshiping God, as discipling believers. And here when Jesus tells this story, he's telling a story about showing compassion for somebody that's being avoided by the church itself. I want to flip back to this narrative here that we looked at and take from it a few lessons that I see from this narrative. First of all, you can't justify yourself in the presence of Jesus. You can't do it. What is it? In Matthew chapter 25, at the end when Jesus judges the, and he separates the sheep from the goats, you know, he says, you know, when I was thirsty, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was a stranger, you invited me in. When I was sick, you came to me. When I was in, when I was in prison, you visited me. And, he, and, and they say, well, when did we, the sheep say, when do we do these things? And he says, well, when he did it unto one of the least of these, he did it unto me. When you showed compassion to one of the least of these, you showed compassion unto me. And I just discovered that you can't justify yourself in the presence of Jesus. One night, I was, uh, it was in the afternoon, actually, uh, one of our foster kids needed, needed a nap. And so I laid, we had two beds in there. I laid down in there to try to get uh, the child to sleep because it just, uh, the child would not go to sleep on their own. And so I'm laying in there, and I hear my wife come into the room, and, I'm, and I've fallen asleep. I'm having a nice little nap myself, you know. And she comes in, and she says, Dad, Dad. I said, yeah, what is it? She says, I just got a phone call. I said, okay, what's wrong? She said, they just called me. They want to know if we'll take another placement. I said, no, it's not a good idea. Go back out. I'm sleeping. And she says, I, I need to know what to tell them. I said, why are you bothering me? Well, they're, 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 they, want, they need me to call them back. So I got up and went out of the room, and I, I, I said, well, I, Tell me, the, who's the child? And, and she says, well, it's this little boy. And uh, he's just been born. And, you know, and she's going through the, the story. And uh, I said, I don't know. I don't know if we should take another child right now. I mean, we had nine, 10, 11 kids at the house, you know, come through. And we're, you know, we're barely managing, you know, keeping our heads above water here. And, um, and she says, don't you hate it, Pastor, when your own preaching works against you? And she said, uh, 
She said, well, you've been saying in the pulpit how we're supposed to allow God to stretch us. Isn't that what you've been preaching to the congregation? I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. You're using my own words against me? (laughs) Can I just tell you, that little girl, we ended up going to get her that day from the hospital. Her name's Penelope. Now, we've adopted her since then. She drives us absolutely crazy. She is a two-year-old redhead that runs at about 150% all the time. But I want to tell you that when you're in the presence of Jesus, you can't justify your position. We can come up with all these reasons of why we can't do this. I can't stop to help that guy. I got to get down the road. I got. I'm on a business trip. You know, I'm on an assignment here. I don't have time to do this. I don't have space. I don't have another bed. I don't have the finances. I don't have. I don't. We just go through the litmus of all the reasons why we cannot do what it is that God has asked us to do in Jesus' name. Every reason why we can't. Serve Jesus. When you've done it unto the one of the least of these, you've done it unto me. And we've come up with a thousand reasons why this is not going to work for our family because it doesn't fit into the picture, the goals. It doesn't fit into who we are, what our life is. I want to tell you right now, there's a family in our church. He went through the foster care classes with us. The couple did. And he was just going into his 60s. And I'm thinking, 60s? You want to be foster parents? Well, I guess that's good. Not only uh, did they foster uh, at the same time with this and still foster today, but they've adopted children. And I'm trying to figure out in my mind, how does all this work? Well, it works because God's hand of compassion works through people to do things that makes no sense to anybody else. Because the rest of us function in a self selfish mode. But when Jesus comes into your life, he identifies every bit of selfishness that is there and says, you can't justify your direction because of what your plan is for your life, I'm going to reveal to you what my plan is. And the plan is for the church to be the solution to the problems that are around us. Amen? The government cannot solve this problem, you understand. The government spends $30 billion a year with a capital B on child welfare. That's taxpayer money alone. When you add into that what nonprofits are, are giving and what's happening, you're talking about $125 billion is spent in child welfare. And these kids are being re-traumatized over and over again because they don't have a place of stability to walk in. Research shows that every time a child is moved from one house to another, it sets them back six months. Six months in their education. Think about that. Down in South Florida, there's a lawsuit going on right now. 400 kids last year had 10 or more placements in one year. Every month they were going to a different Tragic. We've had kids 11 years old come into our house, can't read or write at all. But I'll tell you what, when they leave our home, one thing they can do is quote scripture. They know God's word. My little uh, seven-year-old a few days ago was doing cartwheels in the backyard. And she came up to me and she said, thank you, Daddy, for adopting me. I'm like, what's going on here these days, you know? And uh, I, I said, is there something you want to talk to me about? And she said, she says, Daddy, she said, if you hadn't adopted me, you and Mommy hadn't adopted me, I may be in a home that doesn't know Jesus. And I know this is going to be pretty brash, what she said. And she said, I would probably be going to hell. A seven-year-old. She already understood 
that the greatest value thing that she had received from being adopted was her relationship with Christ. The church is a solution to all the social problems that are around us. The government will not be able to solve this problem. In fact, next Friday, not this week, a week from Friday, our local government placing agency is hosting a dinner for pastors in our community. We have a dozen pastors coming to it where they're going to sit down and say, we can't fix this. And they're going to have me stand up at the table and share how the church can fix the problem to what's happening in our, in our own communities locally. That's the favor of God. Amen? Listen, the second lesson here I pulled from this is seeing the need is not good enough. All three of these men saw the need. The first two walked by. They saw the need. But seeing is not enough. We have to get involved with what is going on. We have to get involved. There was a little boy we had picked up coming to our home, him and his sister. And uh, one evening, uh, actually it was the very first night they came there, I was sitting on the couch with him. My wife was getting all the kids to bed, and we were trying to figure out, you know, get him ready. And it was uh, it was already dark outside. We had picked him up, brought him to the house. And he laid his head on my knee, and I was a little awkward at that point because I really only just met him. I'd seen him before at the private Christian school that we were um, working at. And so he laid his head on my knee, and then he looked up at me, and he said something that kind of took me back by surprise. He looked at me, and he said, I love you, Daddy. Now, he knew I wasn't his daddy. I knew I wasn't his daddy. But he needed somebody in that moment to call daddy because he understood that a dad represents protection, strength, stability, care. And he was just wanting to know because he had had been in multiple placements already. He wanted to know, will you be that person for me? Can I call you this? Because I need somebody right now in this moment to call daddy. Stepping in and looking for opportunities where we can show compassion to people. Compassion knows no boundaries. It knows no boundaries. Sometimes we can look and set boundaries up and say, well, I can't help that person because they're a different race or gender or they're you know, look at the alternate lifestyle they're in, or we begin to create boundaries of, of you know, really who we can or can't help. Can I, compassion doesn't have boundaries. In fact, Jesus broke every boundary there was in showing compassion. And the religious community would come up and say, don't you know who that woman is who's touching you? Jesus is like, compassion has no boundaries. Don't you know the sickness and the disease that man has? Compassion has no boundaries. Everywhere Jesus went, he broke those boundaries and said, compassion has no boundaries. Aren't you glad that God said, look, I'm going to show compassion to the world? The world. Compassion has no boundaries. I've got a short video I want to show you in just a minute, but Harvard uh, did some research and they were trying to discover the best way they could help vulnerable children. And they did this extensive research. And they could have come up and said, these kids need you know, 12 months of therapeutic care. They need to meet with a psychologist weekly. They need to. And they could have come up with all of these things as they did all this research. But they came up with one simple thing. I want to watch, uh, watch, you watch this video right now. And you'll understand what it is. And you'll see how the church can be involved in that. As a kid, as a kid I mastered the 
It just takes one. You know, as this church has a vision to reach youth and children in this community, the reality is, is you play a part in that vision. Every one of you here, the idea that it only takes one caring adult to make a difference in a child's life that can make a difference in their eternity, not just their career, their success in this world, but make a difference in their eternity. We had a sibling group of two placed with us one time, and I'll tell you right now that the the, uh, social services was a little concerned about placing them with us. I understood why when I got the phone call. Little girl's 11, her brother was 8, and their mother practiced witchcraft. She lived down in the woods. Father was a Roman Catholic, and here I am pastoring a church, and they were concerned with how this was going to fit together because these kids would continue to do visits with their parents so their parents were working, parents were working their case plan and not to live in a pastor's home. So we kind of asked the same question. How is this going to work out? Are there going to be some conflicts here? And we told them, we said, look, we can't drive the distance to get them to the school they go in, so they're going to have to come to the private Christian school that we're running if they're going to come into our care. That was the only stipulation. I said, so you're going to need to find out if that's okay. They contacted the family, and they found out, and the the mom and the dad said, it's okay. We'll let them do that. So now we have these children living in our home, attending a private Christian school, doing visits every week, where their mother is giving them crystals and uh, different things like that, part of her religious that she does. But these kids, even though they couldn't read or write, were memorizing scripture like crazy. And every week when they would go to visit, they would tell their mom and dad, Jesus loves you. In fact, the young, woman, the young girl uh, was so bold at times she'd say, if you don't accept Jesus, you're going to go to hell, Mom. Can I just tell you that in those months that they were with us, I believe that God was sowing seeds into their life. And they were traumatized kids. They had a lot of issues, behavioral issues that manifested because of the abuse that had taken place in their life. But when they left our home, the one thing they did leave with was a deposit of God's word into their life. In fact, the young boy, one night, I, uh, he was, uh, he'd gotten in trouble, and I, I said, look, I said, go back to your bedroom. I'll come check on you in just a minute. And so he went back to the room, and a little bit later, I went by the bedroom, and I was going to check on him and, and have a talk with him about what the behavior is, what was going on. When I got close to the bedroom, I kind of listened in the doorway, and I could hear him talking in there, and I thought, what is he saying? And as I listened to the doorway, I listened more closely, and he was quoting Scripture. He was using God's word to self-regulate his own anger, his own behavioral issues. He was using God's word. I'm thinking, man, how many Christians do that? Well, self-regulate their own life by quoting God's word back. Listen, it only takes one person to make a difference in a child's life. I want to just share with you something. I call it the 1% solution. I figured this up here. There's 58 million people that are in church on Sundays in America every week. There's 440,000 children in foster care in America. 1% of Sunday morning is going to be 580,000 people. So if we just started with 1%, if every church just took 1%, and that's how many foster families they had, we could provide a stable, quality, caring, loving, authentic Christian home for every foster child in the United States. 1%. Doesn't it just seem like so bite-sized, like it just seems so easy? 
And this is the message we carry as we uh, begin to reach out to churches. And even today, I've had multiple churches that have reached out to me and said, we want to start the foster care ministry. Would you come and give us the system, the training, the strategy, so that we can begin to minister to foster families and vulnerable children, broken families that are all around us? Listen, it only takes one. And I encourage you tonight to be like that Samaritan. And don't just see the needs that are around you, but step into the midst of those needs and allow God to use you to do something beautiful. Because when you do it unto the one of the least of these, you've done it unto him. Amen. How many of you want to minister to Jesus? Then let's continue to show compassion to the world around us. And at the end of the day, Jesus will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter in. This I want to close with this statement in the area of foster care. Again, some will foster. Others will support those that foster. But everybody can do something. I appreciate your time tonight. God bless you. Amen.